Well, listen, it is the Christmas season, right? And it's the most wonderful time of the year. But you know, there is a version of the Christmas story that does not get much airtime. I doubt anybody gathers their family around the Christmas tree on Christmas morning, pulls out their Bible, and reads this story to them. I call it the Christmas behind-the-scenes story. It's from the Bible. It's in Revelation chapter 12, so listen as I read it. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Daddy, that's scary. I know, honey, I know. Next year we'll go back to Luke 2 and the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night, okay? This is not the warm Christmas vibe that we're usually after this time of year, is it? Here the Apostle John records a vision that was given to him as of a woman who was very pregnant on the verge of giving birth, crying out as she experiences sharp labor pains. How many of you ladies have experienced that? No fun, I hear. So there she is, about to give birth, then out of nowhere, this terrifying dragon appears, blood red in color with many heads and a tail, and he's seen standing right in front of the woman just waiting for the baby to emerge from the birth canal so that he can what? Devour it. I mean, this is a grotesque, frightening scene. Merry Christmas. <laughs> you will tide blessings. Verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was not devoured, but was caught up to God and to his throne. So the dragon's plan, the dragon's diabolical plan is foiled, and the little boy child who it says was destined to rule as a king, arrives safely in this world, and it says he is then snatched away by God and protected. The dragon, we're told a little bit later, is none other than Satan, the devil himself. And as for the woman, many scholars believe that she represents both Mary, the young virgin girl who gave birth to the Christ child, and Mary's people, the community, the Messianic community of which she was a part, from whom the Messiah came. So evidently, that very first Christmas was met with some opposition, some cosmic opposition. The attempt to snuff out the little life of the Messiah is almost certainly, scholars believe, a reference to King Herod's jealous rage when he heard that there was a rival king in town. And he sent out that executive order to have all the little Jewish boys in that region slaughtered and killed. And what this story here tells us is that behind 
Herod's murderous rage was an even more sinister force. A dragon. The devil himself. But when the dragon's plan failed, it tells us in verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, who we see later in the story are the followers of Jesus. Now, all of this begs the question, why? Why? Why did the devil go to all that effort to try and kill that little baby? And when he was unable to do so, why did he go off on us, the people of God? And those are good questions. Well, there's another verse in the Bible, and it's the one we're going to be focusing on today, that, that tells us why. And it's in 1 John 3 and verse 8. And it says this, the reason... The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Would you say that with me? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, our Christmas series this year is entitled, Why He Came. Why Jesus Came. And we're exploring the, the purposes that Jesus had in mind for coming to this earth. And the New Testament records several statements that shed light on that. And last week we explored the one where Jesus said, I came to do the will of my Father who sent me. Remember that? And we saw how Jesus, when he was here, was in submission to his Father, while at the same time he was on mission for his Father in this world. He said he came here for the express purpose of carrying out his Father's wishes, his Father's desires, his Father's will, his Father's plan. Now here in 1 John 3.8, we see a second purpose for his coming, and this was actually part of that plan. The reason the Son of God appeared, it says, was to destroy the works of the devil. He came to defang the devil to destroy his works, his plan. And listen, that is why the devil did everything in his power to try and destroy him. It was kill or be killed. Satan knew that. And so he aimed to devour that little life before he could grow up and fulfill that mission. Thankfully, the devil failed miserably. And we can rejoice, amen, and be glad this Christmas season because the devil's attempt was foiled, Herod's scheme did not work, and the baby Jesus was not devoured. Indeed, he was born and he was whisked away to Egypt to avoid Herod's bloodbath. And Jesus did grow up and he did fulfill his mission, and we are all blessed because of that. But you know, in reading this verse and thinking about it, I got curious about something. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And I got to thinking, well, what are the works of the devil that Jesus came to destroy? What are the tactics, the schemes, the devices of the devil that Jesus came to destroy? So I did a little Bible study, and the fruit of that is found on your study guide today. So if you haven't pulled that out yet, go ahead and do that. Because I want all of us, yes, even this Christmas season... To be aware of the devil's work in this world and in your life. You know the old military adage, right? Know your enemy. Know your enemy. And that is wise for us. And by the way, if you are a person who does not believe in the devil, 
just draw the assignment of speaking on exposing the works of the devil, and you will believe in the devil. When I studied this, the first thing I discovered is this. Now, I'm going to give you a lot today. You can see there's a lot there, and some of you are like, oh, no, we're going to be here forever. I'm just going to touch on some, you know, dive a little deeper, park on some others. And I want you to think, of, as I talk about these works of the devil, I want you to check those that you've experienced in your life, okay? And then we'll get to the good stuff, I promise. First thing I discovered is this. The Bible reveals that it is the work of the devil to incite sin and rebellion. To incite sin and rebellion. The first part of that verse I just quoted, 1 John 3, 8a, the first part of it says this. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So who was the original sinner? It was the devil. It was Lucifer. It was Satan, known by several names. He was the original rebel against God. Isaiah tells us he led a revolt in heaven against the Almighty God, a rebellion that was joined by a third of the other angels. That's why in that Christmas story behind the scenes, it talked about the dragon's tail sweeping a third of the stars out of the heavens. The devil was the original rebel and sinner, and he's been sinning ever since. He's also been inciting and tempting other people to sin as well. And he will continue to do so until he is finally and forever disposed of. And we'll talk about that. So this is one of the classic works of the fallen angel that we know as Satan. To incite sin and rebellion. And wherever you find sin in this world, wherever you find rebellion in this world, just know that behind that is a dark, evil force. Stirring that all up. Some more works of the devil are found in John 10.10. You're familiar with this verse, most likely. It says, the thief, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So stealing, killing, and destroying are the works of that thief we know as the devil. Can I just say, this, this is not a good guy. This is not someone you want to hang around and consort with. You know, sometimes people like to dabble around in occultic stuff, satanic stuff, and they're intrigued by Ouija boards and seances and those kinds of things, and they they think it's harmless. It's not harmless. It is not harmless. It is foolish to mess around with that stuff. Some people dabbled around in it in their teens and 20s, and then they wonder why in their 40s or 50s they're still plagued with all kinds of weirdness. You need to understand that there is evil intent behind all of Satan's interactions with human beings. There is not one shred of goodwill in his heart towards you or towards me. It's all meant for harm. To steal away our birthright as Christians. To kill our spiritual vitality. To destroy our lives. The devil is a robber, a destroyer. That is his work. I know this isn't the nice, warm Christmas message that some of you were expecting today. But we need to understand this. Christmas will mean more to you if you get this. Stealing, killing, destroying. And speaking of stealing, look at this next one. It's the devil's work to snatch away the word. To snatch away, to snatch away the word of God from our hearts. And Jesus told a parable about this, about a farmer who went out and sowed seed in a field and some of it was was 
uprooted and snatched away. And when he interpreted that parable in Luke 8, 12, he said this, Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So it is a work of Satan, the devil, to take the deposited word of God in your heart and try to snatch it away. He was doing it then. He's still doing it today. In fact, I would say he's probably trying to do that right now. As I am sowing the seed of the word of God right here in this room, the devil is no doubt trying to distract you and snatch away the word of God from your heart so that it won't take root and bear fruit unto salvation and eternal life. You see, when people get saved, they start giving the glory in their lives to Jesus. And the devil hates that. It's unbearable to him. And so he works to snatch away the word that's being read or listened to or taught or preached in order to prevent people from being saved and giving glory to Jesus. And I say, don't let him. Don't let him do that. Ask Jesus to embed this word deep, deep, deep into your heart. More works of the devil, deceiving and murdering. Jesus was looking at a group of people one day, and I'm glad I wasn't in that group. I imagine he had a stern look on his face, and in John 8, 44, he said, You are of your father, the devil. How would you like the second person of the Holy Trinity to look at you and say that? Your daddy is the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, or one version says he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Back in Revelation 12, where we were earlier, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. You want to know who's behind all the murder in this world that takes place, that goes on? You want to know who's behind all this deception in this world? It's the devil. He's a murderer. He hates life. He hates human life. He hates God's life. And he hates truth. And so he's a liar. He is an expert liar. And those who believe his lies are deceived. This is not somebody you want to hang around with. And I would say if you have close friends who seem to be in league with this one, with Satan, my counsel would be defriend them. Find new friends. Because if you don't, you'll find yourself being drawn further and further and further away from the truth. And your very life will end up being in jeopardy. It's the work of the devil. Also, number five, to blind people and to bind people spiritually. The Apostle Paul, thinking about a group of people that he knew, wrote this. In their case, the God of this world, who's that? Lowercase g, right? That's Satan. That's the devil. In their case, the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. And so this tells us there are people walking around at work where you work, in your office, or on your campus where you go to school, in your neighborhood, or 
maybe even in your family, who are blind to the truth. They're not seeing things clearly. That's why they say the things they say. That's why they do the things that they do. They can't see the light because they have blinders on, and that's the work of the devil, it says. And so he blinds people to the truth. He also binds them, puts them into enslavement, bondage. Paul was praying for another group of people, and he wrote this. Maybe God, uh, in 2 Timothy 2, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You hear those words? Ensnared, captured. It's the picture of an animal caught in a trap, right? Not free any longer. I'm caught, I'm trapped, I'm ensnared. And it's the work of Satan to bind people, to take them captive, to keep them in bondage to their addictions, the things that enslave them. And he says people who refuse to repent really don't have any defense against the evil one. And that's one reason why the gospel of God's grace is such good news. Because it tells us that he grants repentance that enables the blind to see and sets the captives free. And that's happened to many people in this room. And I want to mention that there's a ministry that's coming online here at New Life that I'm excited about. It's a ministry to men. It's called Conquer, and it's, it's aimed at men helping men break free from a bondage, from an addiction that so many men are ensnared by, and it's the addiction to pornography. And a group of men have been training in that, and they're getting ready to kind of go online with this, and I'm so excited about it, and I'm going to be uh, emailing those of you who are men in our congregation to be praying about this and perhaps to consider it as well. Because this is the work of Satan, to bind people up and enslave them. Another work. Stay with me here. I know this isn't super encouraging right now. He oppresses people. He oppresses people. Yeah? You ever experienced this? The oppressive work of the evil one? Uh, Acts 10.38 says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. There it is. For God was with him, with Jesus. I love that. Jesus setting people free from oppression, healing them from that. There is a spirit of oppression, and it is him. You know, there are people who are being tormented by oppressive spirits. You know some of them. Maybe it's you walking around with a dark cloud over your head, tormented. There's a, a despondency and a hopelessness weighs on them that's out of proportion to their circumstances, out of proportion to their situation. It's the work of the devil to take people down and to pile on, pile on disheartenment and discouragement. Anybody know what I mean? You ever experienced that? The oppression of the evil one. Part of number seven, him opposing and devouring the people of God. You, you probably know this verse. Perhaps, 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, your opponent, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So this too is the work of 
the devil. We saw that with the Christ child, right? Waiting there to devour. The picture here is of a hungry lion roaming about, looking for the weak one, looking for the isolated one to pick off. Those who have wandered away from the flock and are alone, isolated, those are the ones he goes after because they are defenseless. And if you needed another reason to be really super engaged and connected with a church family, a body of believers, and to be in worship regularly, it's this, so you don't get isolated and alone like a person who came up to me after the last celebration and said, I've just felt so all alone and I haven't been here. Easy pickings for the evil one. Easy pickings for the roaring lion. You see, in this conflict, this battle we're in in this life, the battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. The Democrats are not the enemy. The Republicans are not the enemy. The rich people are not the enemy. The real adversary is invisible. Whether or not you're set against him, I want you to know, he's set against you. If you name the name of Christ, he is your opponent, your adversary in this contest. He's your mortal enemy. And number eight, he's really good at this one. He accuses people. He accuses God's people. Have you experienced this, that voice? Revelation 12, again, that chapter just uncloaks, unveils a lot of this one's true colors. Talking about a a time yet future, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser. There it is. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. I think this is one of the devil's favorite weapons to use, accusing. Accusing God's people. And here it says he accuses us to God, and he does it day and night. It's like, don't you have anything better to do? (laughs) Really? You're going to go before God again and accuse us to him? Listen, this is why we need Jesus to be our advocate, our intercessor, our defense attorney to defend us before God and remind Satan that we've been clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. He accuses us to God. He accuses us to each other. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That suspicion you feel of that that other gal or that guy, that voice in your head telling you that they despise you. They despise you. He's not worthy of your respect. Keep your distance. That voice is probably not God, and it might not even be your own voice. It might be coming from below. We need to discern the source of these messages, these voices, these thoughts. He accuses us to each other, trying to stir up suspicion in the body of Christ, pit us against each other. And he also accuses us to ourselves, doesn't he? Like when you have that thought. You ever have these thoughts? You're worthless. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about you. You're never going to amount to anything. If you weren't here, no one would miss you. Why don't you just go ahead and remove yourself from this situation? You won't be missed. That is not God's voice. That is not God's voice to you. 
even though you might think those are your own thoughts, I'm telling you thoughts of self-hatred and self-harm are from the pit. They're from below. They're from Satan. We saw he's a murderer. He hates life, and he hates your life. He accuses us to ourselves. And another way he does this is, you've, you've had this happen, I have, after we've blown it in some way, he kicks us when we're down, right? This really shows his true colors. First, he tempts us to sin. He's the enticer. He's the tempter. He tempts us to sin. And then when we cave in and capitulate, he accuses us when we're down. And he says, Lily, you're a sorry excuse for a Christian. A true Christian wouldn't do that, wouldn't think that, wouldn't relate like that. He kicks us when we're down. I'm telling you, he's wicked. He's evil to the core. We've got to learn to discern the source of those temptations and also the source of those accusing thoughts and reject them in the name of Jesus. You ever do any rejecting when thoughts present themselves to your mind? You can if you're in Christ. You can just reject them. Say, no, I'll have none of that. The devil is constantly accusing. It's in his nature to do so. He also, number nine, produces and appeals to pride. We know this, right? Pride, that's what got him in trouble in the first place. Isaiah tells us that way back in eternity past, the devil, Lucifer by name at the time, the devil felt he should be worshipped instead of God. I mean, how arrogant is that? Every shred of pride that's ever been in my heart, and there is, every shred of pride that's ever been in your heart was incited and fanned into flames by the devil. He is full of pride. He's full of himself. And everybody you know who's full of themselves has been influenced by the evil one. More works of Satan. He intimidates through fear of dying. He seeks to infiltrate the community of God's people. Number 12, he incites persecution. There's a verse in Revelation 2 that says he got some Christians thrown into jail. It was his work. And then this very common one we're all familiar with, number 13, he tempts us to sin. He is the tempter, isn't he? And there are all kinds of temptations for sure. I mean, he's got an arsenal of different kinds of various temptations, and he's been watching you your whole life. He's been watching me. He knows my weakness. He knows your vulnerability. Lots of different kinds of temptations. We're, we're familiar with this. But one thing that's interesting to me is, is the kind of temptation that Jesus himself faced when he was in that showdown in the desert with the devil. Remember, after he was baptized and sent out into the wilderness for a season of testing, who met him there? It says the tempter. The tempter met him there. And what was the essence of the temptations that Satan laid out before Jesus? Was it not? To take an easier path? I mean, wasn't that the essence of the temptation? The devil came to Jesus and he said, Look, you who claim to be the Son of God, look, I actually hold the title deed to all the kingdoms of this world, and I will give them all to you if you'll just do one little thing. You'll just bow down and worship me as Lord. Listen, Jesus. You don't have to go to a cross. 
You can bypass all that suffering. You can do the end run around all that hard stuff. You can become a king right now without having to go through all that. I've got the power to hand you these kingdoms right now if you'll just bow down and worship me. And my Lord said, no, no. As tempting, as enticing as that might sound, it is my Father's plan that I wear a cross before I wear a crown. And I'm here to do the will of my Father. The devil was tempting him to take the easier path. And listen, the devil is still doing that today with the people of God, enticing them over to the broad road, right? Over here, this is where everybody is. This is where everybody's having a great time. You don't want to go on that narrow road. It's so narrow. The road to holiness and purity that leads to life. This is the work of Satan to lure us, to entice us, to go with the crowd. I mean, what's wrong with you? And then, how about this last one? Casting doubt on the worthiness of God. Casting doubt on how worthy God is to be worshipped. And we see this probably most clearly in the Bible, in the book of Job and his story. Remember that story? And it's in that book that we're given this amazing peek behind the curtain into the heavenly realms and a conversation that's going on up there that went on, I should say, between the Lord and Satan. Can you imagine that? preview, I guess, to the temptation in the wilderness. And the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job down there? See that guy? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God, who fears me and turns away from evil. Satan, have you seen that guy? He's the real deal. Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Of course he loves you. You protect him. And you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. You've made him wealthy. Why wouldn't he love you and worship you? But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. He was taunting God, wasn't he? Better wake up, God. People like Job only love you because of your many gifts to them. Take those away. Take away your provision. Take away his possessions, his family, his good health. You'll see. Do that. He'll turn on you so fast, it'll make your head spin, God. He'll drop you like a rock. You are not intrinsically worthy of that man's worship. It's only the good things you do for him that causes him to stay loyal and love you. You know, I believe the evil one is still doing that today, still working to cast doubt on God's intrinsic worthiness to be worshipped no matter what happens in your life or in mine. And I wanted to say something to all of us and to me who live in this entitlement culture that we live in. It sounds really weird to even say this. But it comes from this story. If God, for His own purposes... If God, for his own mysterious purposes, should decide to remove his hand of protection from your life, 
you know, right, that his hand of protection is on you. But if he should decide to remove his hand of protection from your life, if for some cosmic reason God allows Satan to take away your health, your livelihood, your family, all of your possessions like he did with Job, if all of that happens, you'll have a decision to make, won't you? You'll have a decision to make, the same decision that Job had, and it's this. Will, will I still cling to God? Will I still cling to God or will I turn away and forsake Him? And the decision you make in that moment will reveal if you really believe that God is intrinsically, innately worthy of your worship because of who He is or if you love Him mainly for His gifts to you. For His utilitarian value in your life. Listen, I love you. I would never pray that God would remove his hand of blessing and protection from your life. But if he ever does, I encourage you to do what Job did when he had been stripped of everything. Remember what he said? Though you slay me, yet will I trust in you. That's the perspective that defeats the devil in your life and discourages him. And disheartens him and debilitates him when it comes to his work in your life because he's got nothing else. I pray, oh God, grant us that kind of persevering faith that keeps clinging to Christ no matter what happens with our eyes fixed on who? On Jesus and on that eternal reward rather than just the temporal Well, these are the works of the devil. There's many more I could name, but we'll stop there. The Bible says in 1 John 3, 8, that Jesus came. The reason he came was to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy these devilish, diabolical devices. And I say, yes! And I say, how? (laughs) How? How exactly did and does and will Jesus destroy the works of the devil? And to the people of God here today, I want to give you three encouragements today, three aspects of the victorious, triumphant, devil-defeating work of Jesus that you can ponder and think about and believe in and rejoice in and use as weapons to fight back. So this is the good news. Right? Number one, Christ destroyed the devil's works through his own death on the cross. You say, yeah, I know that. I've been taught that since I was a kid. But, yeah, but do you get it? <laughs> do you get the, the transaction that took place? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He became flesh and blood. That through death, his own death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I love this verse in Colossians 2. You should memorize it. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. To me, it is so super ironic that when Jesus, that what Jesus used 
to disarm the devil and take away his chief weapon was that very weapon. Death. He defeated death by dying. Does that seem ironic to you? It's unsettling, I know, to think about. But when we think about Christmas, that very first Christmas, in a very real sense, that little Bethlehem baby was born to die. A shadow of a cross lay over that manger. It says they wrapped him, the little baby, in swaddling cloths. When you look at the original language, you see that those were linen cloths used to wrap dead bodies. A baby wrapped in burial cloths. A couple years later, it says the wise men showed up with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What was that? That was a burial spice. It's what they packed those little claws with when they were preparing a body for burial. Jesus was born to die. He was born so that he could grow up and destroy the works of the devil through his dying. He took the devil's chief weapon and used it against him. How does that work? Well, for us, Through Jesus' death, when we trust in him, our sins get removed, right? Taken away, our sin debt that we owe God gets completely canceled and and our slate is wiped clean. We get Jesus' righteous record. So for we who trust in Jesus, when we die, it no longer means being ushered into the courtroom to receive the judgment that we deserve. Instead, it means running into the arms of our heavenly daddy. I've been to two funerals this week, two or three, and, and, and the, the tone, the vibe, the climate is so different when you knew that person was a Christian. Because then you could say, our dear brother, our dear sister, walked through that doorway into eternity, ran into the very arms of the Father and His Son, Jesus. That's how Jesus defeats the works of the devil. All of the devil's works will have no eternal effect on the people of God. None. He destroyed the devil's works by his death. And you knew I was going to say this, number two. He destroyed the devil's works through his own glorious resurrection. He was with a woman one time whose brother had just died and she was weeping. and He was talking with her, trying to comfort her and... He said, you know, your brother's going to rise again. And she said, I, I know he's going to rise again at the resurrection. And Jesus said to her in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection. You got resurrection standing right in front of you. And I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's our hope, right? And God raised the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. My resurrection and yours one day is as certain as the Lord's resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? Jesus' death on the cross provided our victory, but it's his resurrection from the grave that sealed it, that guaranteed it. Listen, the absolute worst thing that the devil can do to a true Christian is kill their body. That's the worst thing he can do. 
And if God chooses to allow that to happen, the Christian's body may be lying there in the morgue, but their spirit has flown away to be with Jesus. And one day it says the risen Jesus is going to raise the bodies of all of his people. And some people think, but, but, but my aunt was cremated. How can God do that? And so I'm like, listen. I mean, we're talking about the one who spoke galaxies into existence. The God of 400 billion billion suns. This is not hard for him. He will transform these lowly bodies, the Bible says, to be like his own glorious body. Then he will reunite our bodies with our spirits so that we can live in a whole new dimension that awaits us in the new heaven and the new earth. That's the promise. Listen, Jesus' resurrection makes shambles of the devil's work. Yes, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but through Christ's resurrection, those are only temporary thefts. Temporary killings that are going to be reversed and undone one day for all of God's true people. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We summarize it this way. Jesus' victory over the devil and darkness was purchased and secured by his work on the cross and the empty tomb. Today it's being progressively realized in the lives of his people during this age as we make his victory our victory, and enforce its effect through our submission, obedience, and praying. But I want us all to be reminded that there's coming a day, a day when our Lord's victory over the devil will be perfectly and permanently accomplished at a final judgment. What a day that's going to be. Point three, Christ will ultimately destroy the works of the devil at the final judgment. Listen to this scene from Revelation, yet future, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, good names for your babies, (laughs) to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, but... Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet already were. That's the unholy trinity. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So game over for them. This is the final decommissioning of the devil So one day, a day yet future but guaranteed, the eternal Son of God who broke into human history 2,000 years ago, that one will come again in power and great glory riding on a white horse and with one word, he will obliterate the armies that are arrayed against him. He will quell that final rebellion on earth with a fiery blast, then take that old dragon by the tail And just before tossing him into the pit, he's going to hear his confession. Jesus, you are Lord. Every knee will bow. Things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth. And throw him in the pit. And we will be tormented no more. No more deception. 
No more lies, no more stealing, killing, and destroying. No more oppression and enslavement. No more inciting humans to sin. No more inciting angels to sin against God. The hater of God, the accuser of the, of the brethren, will finally receive his just punishment, and there will be no grace, no gospel, no repentance, no redemption, no salvation offered to Satan, no atonement for his sins, no being born again, no opportunity to be saved, and that's just fine with me. That's his destiny. I like bringing up that old saying by Carmen, when the devil reminds you of your past, you just remind him of his future. I love that. I've used it many times. Listen, church, one of the awesome reasons that Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem's manger that first Christmas was to destroy the works of the devil. We as his redeemed people can experience a measure of that victory now, but the full measure of Jesus' victory over Satan is yet to come. It is as certain to happen then as Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection already happened. It's guaranteed. And for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, we're going to be jumping up and down together in great joy, aren't we? And celebrating our new life with our Savior forever and ever, never again to be tormented by the devil and his devices. As I finish up, I want to remind all of us that we were born into a world at war. You know that? I'm not talking about Iran. I'm talking about the collision of two cosmic kingdoms that are colliding in the invisible realms and the effects are visible. And so I get up every morning and I try to remind myself of that reality. And when I'm clear-headed... I take a few minutes to put on every day the armor of God. Because to head out into life's battle without any combat gear on is really foolish. And so in my daily prayer, I put on the armor of God. I say, Lord, I click that belt of truth into place right now around my loins. That's my core, right? I want to be balanced and centered in the truth. I put on the breastplate, I strap on the breastplate of Jesus' perfect righteousness over my vital organs to cover and protect my vital organs. Not my righteousness, but Jesus' righteousness. And I lace up the shoes of the gospel. I say, Lord, I'm ready today to share gospel truth with anybody you bring across my path who needs to hear it. And I carefully place the helmet of his salvation, his teleos, wholeness, deliverance, salvation on my head to protect my brain and my mind. And I take up the shield of faith and his promises and I begin to declare and proclaim, God, I believe your promises for me. I believe them. I declare I believe your promise of protection and provision and power and peace and presence that you will be with me always, even unto the end of the age. I'm not unprotected. I'm not vulnerable. I'm not alone. I'm not powerless. I have what I need and I have you, Jesus. And then I take up the sword of the Spirit, the two-edged machiron of God. That's the Greek word. Whatever scripture I've been working on, I say it out loud. He, Satan can't read my mind or yours. So I say it out loud. I speak. And then I head out into my day with a heightened awareness of my enemy, yes. 
but of my Lord's power and strength to defeat him in my life and to destroy his works that have been raised up against me. And I pray you will be as well. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I know I asked this last week, but I just feel prompted. How many of you would lift your hand and say, see, again, there's something in there for me today. There's something in that sermon that I needed to hear today. Would you raise your hand? Many, maybe, maybe several hundred. You put your hands down. Lord, I take your word on my lips right now, and I declare, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. I declare the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath our feet. Can't be soon enough for me. Lord, I pray for your precious people sitting before me, whom I love and you love dearly, Lord. I pray you'd strengthen them, remind them of the truth that they know and maybe even truth they learn today, Lord, so that they can be equipped and armored up to take their stand against the evil one and having done all to stand to fight the good fight of faith that you've given them and always remind me and us that we, we fight not for victory but from victory, that the outcome is already decided and we win and we praise you for that. Lord, strengthen my brothers and sisters. May Christmas mean more to them this year because perhaps now they have a fuller picture of why Jesus was born in Bethlehem's manger to destroy the works of the devil. And Lord, may his victory be our victory. May we enforce the victory that Jesus won on the cross and in the empty tomb in our lives and for our families and for our loved ones each and every day. Grant us the fruit of that victory in abundance, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.